What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week we had on Tali Vogelstein from Avid Ventures. Avid just closed on one of the largest first-time funds ever raised, and the firm is looking to win allocation of the best deals by taking a more collaborative approach. Within a role, Tali focuses on investing across consumer internet, fintech, and software businesses across the U.S., Europe, and Israel. In this talk, we discuss what equity and earning the right to follow on investments, building an LP base that is a source of value to portfolio companies, and catalysts that have propelled Israel into an innovation hub. Yo, everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. It's a blessing to have you all. I'm sad because I'm calling into this podcast for my last day in New York before heading back to Mexico. But it's 90 degrees, and I'm sharing this city with our amazing guest, Tali Vogelstein from Avid Ventures. She was actually one of our first 100 members of Confluence. And it's been a long just for the ride and we're just really appreciative of her. From her ride at Bessemer to her being at her new fund, which is something I'll let her tell you about, but it's incredible and making some great strides. So with that, how about, Tali, you say what's up and tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, and then maybe Avid as well. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Tyler. And What's up? It's an honor to be on this podcast with you and to have been one of your first 100 members really awesome community, but happy to share a bit about myself and how I got into venture. That'd be dope. Awesome. So I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm actually one of eight kids. (laughs) So growing up, I've always had a ton of competition in my family. It's been healthy, but it's made me very ambitious. And my siblings and I are all very entrepreneurial. Two of my sisters recently started a company together. And we've always been competitive with everything from board games to academics to sports. And so I I wanted to go to business school for undergrad. I'd always thought about starting my own business. And I was fortunate to get into Warden where I studied finance and entrepreneurship. While I was in school, I actually spent a summer interning at a venture capital firm in Israel called Genesis Partners, which later was acquired by Insight Partners. And after my experience there, I thought, VC was the coolest job. I decided I wanted to get into the industry full-time, so got back to Penn. It was junior year. Most of my friends were applying for banking and consulting jobs. I applied to every venture capital firm in New York that took interns, and some banks, too, as backup. But I was lucky to get an internship at Bessemer Venture Partners after my junior year and had an amazing experience there. It turned into a full-time job. And I spent a few years at Bessemer after I graduated. Bessemer's a really great firm. I got institutional training. I got to learn from and work with some of the smartest investors in the world. And if you sourced a deal at Bessemer, even as someone straight out of college, 
you really got to own the deal end to end. You, you could develop and maintain the relationship with the founding team, you could spearhead the due diligence process, write the investment memo, work on the term sheet, and work with the team after investing. So I got to quickly learn the ropes of the industry. And eventually, this gave me the confidence I needed to bet on myself and trust my investment judgment. So after about two years at Bessemer, I decided I love the industry, but Bessemer is a really big firm. I got into interact with so many smart founders who were building, and I decided I wanted to build something, but stay in the industry. And around that time, I was introduced to my partner at Avid, Addie Lerner, who had recently left General Catalyst to start Avid, and she was looking for her first hire. We clicked, immediately met right after lockdown started, so we spent about 10 hours together over Zoom, ended up meeting up outside of New York for a socially distant walk, and very quickly knew that we wanted to work together. So it's just the two of us at Avid. I left Bessemer in August to join Avid, and it's been an incredible experience since. That is really dope. Seems like you all have been crushing it and, and at a really young age, been able to build something that, that not many people can compare to. From my understanding, you all are one of the largest first-time funds and also executing across geographies and taking some pretty innovative approaches to doing this early stage investing thing. You want to talk a little bit about what that's been like, getting everything set up or just as much like the inspiration behind launching the fund in general and your strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So Addy and I believe that there was a better way to do series A and B investing and developed Avid to be uniquely collaborative with other investors, hands-on with our founders and potentially deep pocketed. And so the way the strategy works is we, co-invest at or around the Series A stage once there are proof points that show that things are working. And we'll write a small check around 500000 to a million dollars alongside typically a top tier lead who we in many cases will help bring into the round. And then after investing, we try to be what we say is disproportionately helpful relative to our ownership. So we can earn the privilege to invest more capital in the business later on and double down on our winners with checks around five to $10 million, which will be well above our pro rata. We developed this approach for, for a few reasons. One, the industry can be a bit sharp elbowed at times. Some of my best friends work in VC or growth, and it's been fun to collaborate with them at Avid since we're not competitive since we co-invest. And we can be collectively more helpful to portfolio companies if, if we're actually working together. And then also because we don't have strict ownership targets, we can really do what's best for founders rather than outsourcing work to our platform team, which a lot of big firms have. We really do everything ourselves and have a few advisors who we work closely with too, like a CFO advisor, a talent advisor, but we are the deal team. We understand the business. So we really want to work very closely with our companies and have our founders think of us as an extension of their team. My partner, Addie, spent the last decade of her career doing primarily growth stage investing. She started at Goldman in their special situations group. Then she went to General Atlantic doing pure play growth investing and then General Catalyst where she did a combination of growth and early stage investing. And at her prior firm, she was acting as the sort of outsourced strategic CFO really leveraging her growth 
investment perspective to help early stage companies grow more efficiently and faster. And I have only been in this industry for a few years, but I've always been a very data-driven, metrics-driven investor coming from Bessemer. And so together, we've been working with our companies to help them with everything from building strategic growth models to building and implementing KPI dashboards and automating that, that process of updating KPIs every month or every week or whatever it is. And then we've also been acting as really a biz dev arm for our companies. And we've been doing this by being scrappy and helping wherever possible by really putting our networks to work and helping with customer intros, partner intros, talent intros too. And like we really built Avid around this belief that investing in a founder startup is a privilege that we should earn. So we try to earn this privilege before investing by getting to know founders early when they're not fundraising. And then after investing, we try to really be disproportionately helpful so that we can earn this privilege to invest more capital in the business in, in a future round. And this is how we think we're different by being very collaborative, aligned, hands-on. And also I say potentially deep pocketed because we have the ability to write larger checks into our companies in future rounds out of our fund. And then we also have a somewhat unique setup with our LPs where we can actually access an open checkbook through our LPs to invest much larger checks around 25 to $50 million in future rounds, if it makes sense for us and the company. And we could do this in a very streamlined way where founders just deal with us and it can be a very streamlined process of having us and our LPs invest collectively. We're just trying to create something new that prioritizes the founder and prioritizes our relationships with co-investors too, believing we can be a lot more productive together and create a healthier industry. Love that a ton. One thing I want to highlight or piggyback on is the piece you talked about with your LPs. And uh, just take a moment to realize and I guess applaud you all for, for doing what you all have done which is raise one of the first or, or one of the largest first time funds, especially as uh, two non-white men. So one round of applause. Two, I would love to give you space to speak a bit on what it was like to go out and do the first time fund and market yourselves to LPs, especially doing that successfully, plus having the leeway to do some of the nimble strategies that you just spoke on top of the existing fund. Absolutely. And I should note that my partner, Addie, started fundraising before I joined her. We've been building deep relationships with very philosophically aligned LPs, and they've been very interested in our unique investment strategy of writing these non-lead checks at the Series A and B stage. Also, we initially raised from two large family offices and then brought on a few VC funds like Foundry, General Catalyst. We brought on the other LPs after we'd actually invested in a few companies and could demonstrate that our strategy was really working, that we were able to get into some of the best deals with smaller checks and be really helpful to founders. And that certainly helped. Got you. That makes a ton of sense. I love that we're starting to see more and more folks lean on other funds for investment, for strategic alignment, a lot of just like learning by seeing other people do. And I uh, also love that you all took the route of going family office first. I think that's a great way to get started. At the end of this, I want to talk to you about someone who I potentially introduce you all to that might be helpful later down the line or maybe even now. But with that said, please tell us more about the, the size of check strategy here. And 
really you talk about with us a helpfulness ratio, like how helpful you can be relative to the dollars that come in. I would love to get your thoughts on how you all execute on that and how a lot of people just aren't really delivering relative to how much capital they're requesting in a commoditized space. Yeah, absolutely. So first thing worth mentioning is we're taking a pretty concentrated approach. The strategy is to invest in about 20 or so series A or series B companies out of fund one over about three years. And these investments will be with toehold checks around 500K to a million dollars. And then the plan is to write larger double down checks in about seven or eight of these companies. And the initial checks are not really gonna move the needle in our $72 million fund. There would need to be a pretty insane return there, but they'll hopefully position us to get the opportunity to write much larger checks down the road. And something interesting about our strategy is we have this outsourced strategic CFO type of approach to helping companies scale faster. And because of this, we'll literally be in the weeds of the data as we work with our companies and we'll know when things are really working and when we want to double down with larger checks, that's a win-win type of situation for us and our companies who appreciate this hands-on help in that functional area. But because of our concentrated approach, we're not actually investing in that many companies per year. We're investing about seven or eight companies per year will be very hands-on with companies. And we're hoping to expand our team soon so that we can have more bandwidth to devote time to our portfolio companies. And as I mentioned, we're starting to build a network of advisors so that they can just help us add more value to our portfolio companies. But we don't want to outsource everything and we'll never want to do that. We really do want to be very founder facing and just spend a lot of time helping our portfolio companies ourselves rather than assigning that work to others. Yeah, so I, I think like it's easy to overpromise when you want to get a term sheet signed and say you're going to help in all these different areas. But as a new fund, we're literally building our reputation on the back of our work with our founders and, and what they have to say about us. And so we're like incredibly motivated to underpromise and overdeliver. And I'm telling you this, I tell founders this, but what we also tell them to do is to look through our portfolio and choose a founder they want to talk to and hear their perspective because we don't just pick and choose which companies in our portfolio we want to help, maybe based on how successful we think they'll be, but we really are dedicated to helping each and every one of them. Got it, got it. I think that's a very genuine approach in an honest take because most investors are just really great salespeople. So taking a value first perspective is huge. I love that you are doing that with two people and I would love to get a feeling on top of that of how you all have gone about it. Like how have you all actually gone about or plan to go about as you all scale and continue to build the business, adding some of that value. And then from there, I want to talk a little bit about more other geography. So, do you have any maybe favorite ways that you add value to people? Yeah, well, we're investing in a company. We'll package up all of our due diligence work. So we tend to write really long memos. They've been about 10 to 20 pages so far. We should probably shorten them because in some cases we're, we're the only ones reading them. <laughs> I know the feeling. I used to do 20 to 50 page memos at 0.72. It was crazy. 
Yeah, it's tough when you just get really excited about a business, but we, we package up all of our diligence work, our investment memos, our models. We like to build models, even for Series A companies, even if they're pre-revenue, we, we think it's just really helpful to make sure we truly understand the key business drivers by building models and also returns analyses to see how our investment can hopefully return the fund. So we'll share all of that work with our founders and then we'll host a kickoff session with them where we discuss our key learnings, our key findings during our calls with customers or potential partners or whoever it is, and spend that time, usually it's about two hours, to just figure out what the best ways are to work with each other going forward. And that's been working together to build a strategic growth model. And you asked about how we can do this as a team of two. We've been working with a pretty incredible CFO advisor who will do some of the heavy lifting with our companies to build this strategic growth model. Also, we'll build a KPI dashboard and sometimes founders or head of finance or whoever it is will just spend so much time doing manual data input. And a lot of this work can be automated by setting up data integrations. And with the click of just a few buttons, those KPIs can update every week or every month or whatever it is. Our CFO advisor has also been super helpful in making sure companies don't waste time building these KPI dashboards, but still have them because it's so important to track where you are on a regular basis. And you can just like PDF that dashboard and add it to a board deck, which can also just be really efficient. And they'll also talk about areas where we can help as this biz dev team. We just had a kickoff session with one of our portfolio companies the other day where we created a spreadsheet of all the Series B investors that the company should be talking to for their next round, which will likely be in a few months, and flagging the ones that they should be building relationships with early. We also created a tab with all the partners who we think could be really interesting for them and different ways that we can get to them. Like right after the meeting, we made a few partner intros. And then we also create a tab to just focus on the KPIs that matter, what the company's tracking, what we think they should be tracking, where we think they'll need to be by the end of the year in order to raise this round they're hoping to raise an attractive valuation. This is just one example, but we can really flex based on company needs. And again, I think Addy in particular has this incredible growth investing background and is really a financial modeling and Excel whiz. But the reason we're able to be very helpful with BizDev, in addition to strategic finance, is because we're new fund managers, we're super scrappy, and we've been able to develop a very strong network. And part of the reason we're able to do that is because we're not competitive with anyone. True that. I think the, the smooth elbow approach is fire. Plus, everything you said is, I've been seeing a lot of the, the funds who are ahead of the curve try to move into figuring out how to automate, figuring out how to properly allocate resources, and like actually be forward thinking. That's huge. Okay. One piece that I noticed when we first started talking today, a little bit before we started recording, was you all's recent investment in Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, you all decided to look at North America, Israel, and Europe, and I guess now Latin America as well. I guess that's a major reveal because that wasn't on the website when I wrote out some of it's been like, and maybe even before that, just to talk about why you decided. To, to invest internationally versus solely focusing on the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited about this investment, by the way, and hopefully to be doing a trip to Mexico City soon, where hopefully we can meet in person since you've been spending time there. 
when we started Avid, we told our LPs that we would primarily be investing in New York-based companies. Right now, we're a team of two. We're both based in New York. We have the strongest network in New York with founders, with other investors who will often share deal flow with us. However, this world is in a unique spot right now relative to where it was when we started fundraising because sometimes it's hard to actually know where a company is based and we're hopefully about to invest in a company with a totally remote team that's actually spread across five continents. And, and I think location is less important than it used to be. That said, most of our portfolio companies are in New York. We're very excited about companies that are being started out of New York and hope to continue investing here. But we really are interested in just backing the best founders and the best founders can be all over the world. I personally am very excited about some of the engineering talent and general talent in Europe. And when I was at Bessemer, I actually invested in one company in Europe, another company with offices in Europe and the US. And it's just always been an interesting area focus for me. Unfortunately, there's no longer a European discount since deals are, are very hot there. But I think yeah. <laughs> for, for us, I think we have this unique opportunity to invest in companies around the Series A stage who might only be in Europe when we invest, but be considering expanding to the U.S. down the road, maybe around the next round. And it's really interesting for them to raise from a European VC as the lead, but to bring Avid into the round, given our U.S. connectivity and our ability to be very helpful as they do think about expanding to the U.S. and developing connectivity there and raising from a lead U.S. investor in their next round. So that's been one opportunity for us to get into the best rounds in Europe. I actually lived in Israel for a year in between high school and college. I studied at Hebrew University for uh, half the year, and then I volunteered in a development town in Israel called Yerucham, which is south of Beersheba, where I taught math at a public high school. And then later, as I mentioned, I interned at Genesis Partners, which is a venture capital firm in Israel, and really got into the industry because of my experience there. But I just think there are so many interesting companies coming out of Israel. We've invested in Rapid out of an SPV since it's a late stage company. And my partner, Addie, did the Series B when she was at General Catalyst. So we did the most recent round at Avid through the SPV. But that's our only Israeli portfolio company so far. And we're actually doing a sourcing trip to Israel in about a month or two because we want many more Israeli companies. And the reason why I think there's a big opportunity to invest in Israel is because one, companies coming out of Israel can't just focus on the Israeli market, a pretty small country. It's about the size of New Jersey. So companies really need to have this global focus from day one. Maybe they'll focus on the whole world initially. So I think you have founders in Israel just going after really big market opportunities. Also, I heard recently that entrepreneurship has become Israel's nation sport. And I think there's this network effect occurring where there have been these really big exits recently out of Israel, which has led to more funding going into Israeli companies, which has made entrepreneurship more attractive for potential founders, and therefore has just led to this flywheel where more individuals start companies, there's more funding, there are bigger exits, and it just continues. 
So I think that's been one interesting phenomena that's happened over the past few years. And then also in Israel, almost everyone has to join the military. And in the military, they're taught to overcome challenges, to withstand constant changes and really tough working environments. And I think this prepares individuals for entrepreneurship. And at the same time, there's just so much innovation that comes out of the military, particularly around specific sectors such as cybersecurity. And there have been several large cybersecurity Israeli startups over the last few years, I think, for that reason. So I'm very bullish on Israel. I'm very bullish on Europe. I think U.S. is also a great place to be investing in. We're here. And then to answer your original question on Latin America, we've been making a lot of fintech investments recently. And I think there are just all these white space opportunities to use a model that has worked really well in the U.S. and bring it to Mexico or Colombia or just Latin America broadly and uh, create a really big company in a space where they're are few to no competitors. So that's one reason. Often that model will need to be tweaked just because there are nuances to several verticals in Latin America versus the US, but I do think it's an interesting opportunity. Some of the best founders are also in Latin America. Some of the best founders are all over the world. And to my earlier point, our LPs want us to make money. And (laughs) we told them that we would mostly be investing in New York-based companies, and that's been true. But if we come across an incredible investment opportunity anywhere in the world and have a real thesis, an opportunity to invest, then they'll want us to pursue that. Sure. Yeah. Right now, everywhere you go, there are incredible human beings that are more ambitious and enabled than ever. So as long as you all keep hitting the, the nail on the head, like I looked at you all's portfolio page, it's dope. Like, I I see no reason why your LPs wouldn't be happy and begging you to figure out the next fund. I guess you kind of went a bit deep. I was just going to ask uh, about your thoughts on fintech, but I think we're covered there, which gives us a little bit of extra time for you to ask us anything you'd like. I don't know how much you've listened. You've been an early supporter, so maybe you've listened a decent amount, but we, we tried to start letting our guests ask us anything under the sun and uh, we give you a 100% transparent answer. We haven't heard from Clay yet, so if you do ask, he'll probably answer first and then I'll chime in and, and we can continue from there. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to hear about your vision for Confluence and how you think it will scale as the current investors you're working with really grow up and become the key decision makers in the industry. Ooh. Tyler, are you going to take that first or you want me? You can. I'm indifferent on this one. I think we both probably have great answers for it. Yeah. So, I don't know. We, we've thought about that a lot. I think one of the reasons that we wanted to target this group of people was that we had this belief that once people stay in venture, they remain in either venture or the startup world for the, their entire career. We're trying to just play this game where we're continually building trust with our audience, being reliable sources of value, and then also building vehicles that allow a lot of the people that are working in venture today that don't necessarily get a lot of the upside from a lot of the work they're doing. We want to build a vehicle to allow that to happen. So say you have a conviction in the company, you don't necessarily get carried from your fund, but you want to see some of the upside in that company's success. 
we have a way to do that through writing as a carrier recipient if you're able to help get us an allocation into that round. We think that's another driver for some of the trust that we're building with this group of people and we want to continue to build more and more features to just cater to the audience that we have. And I don't know, I'm probably missing some stuff there, but like the game we're playing is just to continually build trust and add value to the people that we've led into this community. There's a lot of ways to do that. We're always thinking of different ways to, to add different features that people could be asking for. I'm sure I missed something in there, but Tyler, if you got anything else, go for it. But yeah, I think you covered a lot of it. It's, it's pretty simple. Like Venture itself is a pretty short career span in regards to going from beginning to end. So you think about the tenure from analyst to partner, it's like somewhere between uh, five and 12 years, which means that if we're going to stay around and have some longevity, like naturally almost every single person in our community who joined either as an analyst or principal, and now we get a ton of partners and even LPs join, like those people will be industry leaders within two to six years. So I think that was a strategic play because we realized there was a gap there. But when you look at what we've built, we tried to be as full stack as possible. The first component, like when you think about entering venture, which was where we started when we were looking to fill a gap was education. Like how do you get super smart on it? How do you learn every resource, database, tool, et cetera, that you need to become an effective investor? From there, it's okay. Now I like won't sound stupid and I can do my job. So I should go out and meet people and find deals. So we created tools for people to meet other people. So that's the Slack groups. That's this podcast. That's meetups that we host. Then tools for people to actually do deals. That could either be from the networking itself, or that can be tools like commonapp.vc or our, our quarterly meetups for fintech and biotech or whatever else we decide to do. Mm-hmm. And then the last component is, okay, now I can do deals. I know people. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> so pay me. And we realized through our compensation surveys that people weren't getting paid after we validated it ourselves from not getting paid as much as we felt that we should. Mm -hmm. And uh, we designed a ton of different systems for us to get people paid. The first one was us saying any person who brings a deal to us directly, uh, we'll give you 30% of the carry that we end up putting or receiving ourselves. So we'll do one, two, three, me, Clay, and that person so that they can start to accrue equity themselves in the deals that they work so hard for. Because as junior folks, like you said at Bessemer, if you source a deal, you're doing the memo, you're doing the support, you're doing the contact. So why shouldn't you get like pretty fair economics there? So we fixed that or gave people a lane to do that. And then on the last component is now you've done deals, you have a little bit of money, maybe even enough to put up some GP carry yourself. Can I actually find a way for myself to build a fund. So the last piece that we built was the future GP scout program under the confluence access fund, which is uh, select members in our group. They can actually just from us build out their own track record in public in front of our thousand plus funds that are part of the community. So we give people anywhere from a hundred thousand dollars to $250,000 to write 10 checks on their own within two years, do that in a public space if they choose to. And they can use that to either validate in front of all of their peers that they have an incredible portfolio and maybe even let those peers co-invest through our syndicates and then also be able to show that work to their future LPs or current LPs. And they can say that happened for them individually instead of having it happen because some partner at their fund was the CEO of some big company or they work at a really name brand fund. And that's the reason that the deal got done. That's just how we're looking at it. And our hope is, I think we're at like nearly 1,500 people now across 1,000 funds that over a 10-year period, we've helped every one of them in some type of way. And maybe 20% of those people become incredibly influential in our space. And maybe we've done 10 or 20 people with 10 company portfolios. So we've done 
a few hundred deals ourselves. And maybe we become a huge fund that's just helping people in doing so. And uh, maybe me and Clay will be, become GPs or continue to build companies like we've been doing outside of Confluence right now. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And as one of the first hundred members to join Confluence, I was so excited when I first created an account and saw all the incredible resources that you had. But it's interesting to see how much Confluence has evolved since then. It's, it's just been about a year. And I also love that uh, you also are trying to make this industry more collaborative with about 1,500 investors. I know one of the trickiest parts can be getting investors at competing firms to really share deal flow with each other and support each other. But I've seen it happening. Yeah, it's actually really surprising. When you go to the meetups or you start to see some of the, the message engagement, like I, I don't even think a lot of people realize. So if you go on Confluence on the Slack channel on a regular day, you might see somewhere between on a bad day, five messages and on a good day, 20 something messages. But like Clay's like an analytics junkie and he's way more of the product person. He's built like all of this stuff, if I'm being completely honest. Like he looks at the analytics for Slack and most of these messages are DMs between people. And like you see a ton of new messages where people are just scrubbing through the database and like looking for this sector, X this geography, X this check size or whatever it might be. And just DMing their friends instead of having to get cold, cold intros or warm intros. And it seems like people really want to help each other because this is kind of a lonely space. We don't have 100 person, 200 person analyst classes. It's usually like three to four people or like in your case, one or two people or me and Clay's case, one or two people. And you can't just conquer the world alone. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait for our meetup in Mexico at your place, hopefully soon. I'm looking for penthouses now, finding one with a really dope pool and jacuzzi, like a private one. So when I get that done, open invite. Cool. So Clay, we need to hear more from you. So Tali, you're welcome to ask something else or raise a random topic and we can just freestyle. And if not, Clay, you can take us out with with some quick fire questions for Tali to just be a savage through. Yeah, awesome. Are there certain industries that the two of you have been really excited about these days? And I'm happy to share my thoughts as well. I think we might have like pretty similar answers here. But for me, I've gone down these different rabbit holes, both about community, which is obvious, the rise of these private communities, unbundling some of the major platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these other massive social media platforms are too noisy. I think a lot of people are trying to find meaning and connect with other like-minded people in some of these different Slack or Discord groups. I've been doing a lot of reading of that over the past couple of years, continue to be interested in that. I think that's going to continue to play out. And then also the creator economy and just looking at different software tools aimed at these creators, whether it's Developing an audience, catering to the audience, and then eventually monetizing on the audience. I feel like there are more and more ways to do each of those steps, and there's more and more software tools catering to each of those steps. So I've been doing a lot of deep dives there, but I know Tyler's looking at some other stuff as well. Yeah. So for me, a lot of those things as well, I was traditionally, in my mind, a frontier fintech investor like so doing the international and deep tech on the fintech side of things love med tech food tech a lot of the like grittier infrastructure on enterprise but right now to be quite frank like i just signed a deal with my co-founder to start like our own startups and like now i'm just focused on that outside of our investments for 
confluence one of our companies will be in the prop tech space which for context my co-founders the founder of notel or the two founders of notel like they did that well so we want to use some of their advantages to build something that's as big as or bigger than notel was uh, for those who don't know notel is we biggest competitor they had a kind of shitty experience during covid but before that they had gone from like zero to 400 million in revenue and got like a $1.6 billion valuation. So our hope is that we can continue to innovate in a CRE, maybe even residential, who knows. And then on the other side of things, maybe do something in med tech and digital health. I've focused a ton on that at GPV and we had an adjacent space in that 4.72 venture. So my hope is that we can also create something that's really large in that space. And mm -hmm. the only other space that I'm thinking about is random, but like <laughs> infrastructure for like bodegas and neighborhood focused communities. So I think that all those things are, are really interesting. And any people, including you, Tali, if you know anything about those spaces, please reach out to me to talk and share notes and maybe even build stuff together. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully I can source a deal for, for Confluence. Uh, yeah, or maybe you all can invest in me. I would love, I want to, for all my investors, have uh, minorities and women on our cap table and, and just make sure to create equity opportunities and ownership opportunities for those who, again, aren't white males. Unless you're a really helpful white male, I'll take your money. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that you're focused on company building. I think now is like the best time ever to incubate companies, just given how crazy the market is right now. Exactly. Let's uh, raise as much as, no, I'm kidding. Be efficient with your capital, of course, but if we get a lot of capital and we can be efficient and have a ton of runway without having to give away all of our ownership, I'd love to do that. It's a good time. It's, a, it's definitely a founder's market. Yeah. I have a few investor friends who are pretty reluctant to invest in this environment given the valuations. And so the really interesting response to that is deciding to build companies instead out of their VC firm because they want to do something with all their time. But I love that you're doing that and still investing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one thing for you and everyone else is I don't think that, and I don't, Clay agrees. I don't think that any of us ever need to stop investing. Once you have the network and the wherewithal and know how to be helpful to people, like, you're a v, like once a VC, always a VC is my mentality. If you want to talk about how to do that, maybe in 10 years after you all 20X your next three funds, happy to talk about it or anyone else who's here. Clay, you want to maybe sprint with these quick fire questions? And I'm really interested in hearing Tali's take. Yeah, let's do it. So Tali, we do these at the end. Five quick questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we have is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Don't go on podcasts. They're a waste of time. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally kidding. I don't hear that regularly. I don't think I've ever heard that. And this has been so much fun. You, 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 you are a real savage. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with her, by the way. Please don't say yes when we ask you to come on the Confluence podcast. <laughs> you should definitely say yes. But on a serious note, many people have encouraged me to avoid being a generalist. But I think some of the best investors are generalists because investing often requires open-mindedness without preconceived notions. It's great to have a thesis. It's super helpful to move quickly, but also very valuable to be a generalist who can quickly develop theses. 
Love it. Next one. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? I got a city bike membership and I love being able to control my schedule while building exercise into my day. Nice. I was just on city bikes in Miami last weekend. Next one, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Saying no and then realizing a few years later, you should have said yes. Those are tough. Those are tough. Okay, I've spread through these. A lot of our audience is <laughs> uni VCs or those aspiring to break into venture. What's your best piece of advice for this group of people? Develop relationships with founders who can vouch for you. That's how you win deals. That's how you get jobs at top VC firms. Totally agree. All right, last one here. Who's a mentor that you want to give credit to? This is an easy one. It's definitely my partner, Addie Lerner, who I haven't gotten to speak much about, but she's been an incredible partner to me, an incredible mentor who really believes that my success will be her biggest success. And I've learned so much from her already. It's awesome. Sweet. I think that's the fastest we've ever run through the quick fire. Like usually those are, are five minute segments where we're just rambling back and forth. I feel like that was like short to the point, really impactful. So that was awesome. Um, <laughs> Tyler, did I miss anything? Anything else you want to jump in with? Yeah, bro. You always miss this. <laughs> Who do you want to see in Confluence or on this podcast, Tyler? Hmm. I want to see Adam Laurie, who just started his own creator fund. You both are interested in the creator economy. I think you'd have an awesome conversation with him. You think you could help with an intro there? Yeah, I can help. That would be sweet. Cool. Uh, just finish your Venmo and we'll pay you for the, for the intro. Thank you. <laughs> that would be awesome. My pleasure. I can make a few more intros if you're interested in that case. Never going to turn those down. As long as we get an economies of scale discount, I'm with it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you both. This was a really great first podcast experience. Huge thanks again to Tali for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Tali, we've linked her social below, and you can also find her contact info within the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.